2: America's religious and political public forum is no longer confined to debates between liberals, be they Catholics or Protestants, and socially conservative evangelicals and traditional Catholics, with atheists condemning all of the above. There is now among some Catholic intellectuals and academics a movement called integralism that calls for the United States to move towards an integration of church the Catholic church and state. This movement, in turn, is opposed by other conservative Catholics who regard integralism as not only unworkable but also undesirable, especially in the robustly pluralistic America of our day. Meanwhile, on both the woke left and the alt-right, there are essentially neo-pagan movements which reject the American founding's identification of ethical monotheism as the foundation of fundamental rights and political and personal moral obligations. Enter scholars with a call to rediscover and revivify the classical and Christian sources of the founding, In their 2022 book, The Classical and Christian Origins of American Politics, Political Theology, Natural Law, and the American Founding, Justin Buckley-Dyer and Cody W. Cooper argue that this political philosophy, predating Aristotle and continuing through such, such thinkers as Thomas Aquinas to Lincoln to Martin Luther King to scholars of our own day, offers a way forward toward just society built on the rich, strong, easily grasped moral framework of natural rights and natural law. The book we will discuss today with one of its co-authors, Professor Cooper, shows that many of the leaders of the American founding were steeped in the natural law tradition, and that this tradition, while often developed and nurtured by Catholic thinkers, was also drawn upon and embodied by Protestants of the period of the American Revolution and the earliest days of the Republic, such as John Jay, James Wilson, Thomas Jefferson, James Otis, and John Dickinson. The author's right of many of the founders, imbued with the tenets of classical and Christian natural law thinking, believed in a moralistic god of justice who favored the side of liberty, such that the revolutionary actors saw saw, saw themselves carrying out the divine will on the world historic stage in obedience to the dictates of right reason. The emphasis on reason is a key component of natural law thinking of all types, and Cooper and Dyer argue in their book that a reexamination of the writings and belief system of the founding generation shows that far from being religious skeptics bent on creating a new world order that discarded faith in God, many of the founders were in fact motivated in their rebellion against the British by their belief that revolt was called for when their ability to move their society in a moral direction based on the idea of natural rights bestowed by God was being hampered by diktats of the British king and parliament. Natural law thinking was not just in the air in the decades just before, during, and after the revolution, in the first decades after revolution. Rather, we learn that Cooper from Cooper and Dyer that careful analysis of the founding period reveals that ideas central to America to the American founding thought are not only compatible with, but presuppose classical natural law and natural theology. Crucially and illuminatingly, the authors showed that some of the earliest anti-slavery arguments were influenced heavily by natural law thinking, both sentiment and wording, and the Declaration of Independence shaped the thinking of Lincoln and King and provides common ground for those on the left and the right on questions of equality and justice. They also show that with its emphasis on reason, derived though it is from a divine origin, the natural law tradition can be embraced by those of any faith or not who are eager to foster comedy and rationality in a time of discord and in some respects even societal breakdown. This book is a vigorous counterargument to those on the left who downplay the deeply religious character of the American founding era in order to create a false narrative of a gauzy deism among the founders that would lead to no religion at all. The authors call this the subversive theology thesis, as well as to those on the right, such as a scholar Patrick Deneen, who argued that the founders were not religious enough, and did in fact lay the foundation for the godless state of affairs we are increasingly in, and that the right needs to basically get over the founders and move in the direction of integralism. Importantly, this book shows that natural law is not just for Catholics, but played a role in forming the principles that we all live by and need to preserve, a role well understood by non-Catholics such as Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King. Let's hear from one of the two authors of this study, Cody W. Cooper. Hello everyone, my name is Hope G. Lehman and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with one of the two authors of the 2022 book, The Classical and Christian Origins of American Politics, Political Theology, Natural Law, and The American Founding, Cody W Cooper. Thank you for being so patient, Cody. As you can tell, I like the book so much that I I get a little excited and wordy about it. But in fact, I want to tell readers that it's not just natural law, but natural law and espionage and treason and Benedict Arnold. And it's it's really a wonderful read. It's not dry at all. It's it's really very, very moving and exciting in, in many parts of it. So I wanted to make that clear. As we, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, th- th- th-
1: thank you, Hope, and it's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here.
2: Well, wonderful. I'd like to start on here by asking how you came to write the book with a co-author and why you each felt it was needed, and I'd like to know who approached whom, and did you agree on the single aim of, the book? this is a long question, <laughs> and how did you divide up the writing, and how did you approach Cambridge University Press with a co-authored book, a natural, law? I don't think and most natural law books are not co-authored unless they're edited essays, collections of essays, is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's a good question. And it's yeah, I guess it's it's good to start at the beginning if you're going to start somewhere. Um, and so, uh, yeah. So Justin Justin Dyer is actually a good friend of mine. And we've uh, we've known each other a, a long time. Um, we, we were in graduate school together. We actually know each other all the way back from our childhood. Um, so we it's it's easy to to co-author when you are, you know, close friends with someone. So that so the actual, you know, uh, writing, uh, you know, feeding off of each other, um, you know, we, we we would divide up and kind of one person would take a lead on this chapter or that chapter, but then we would, you know, sort of edit each other. And that actually part of the process is really easy in terms of how how it began. It, it did. It really did grow out of uh, of our experience in graduate school and our encounter with, um, with the American, studying the American founding and political philosophy more, more generally. um, And some of the specific schools of thought that we engage with in the book, we were introduced to, you know, around the same time in graduate school. And so we were, we were thinking about these questions and talking about these questions for for many years before we started writing the book. Um, And so, yeah, it, it, it sort of, it sort of grew out of both of both a close friendship um, and many conversations over the years about these things. um, And then specifically in graduate school, wrestling with some of these questions um, and then continuing to afterward, you know, in our academic careers. So, yeah, it was, um, it it was, it's actually been several years ago since I wrote some of these chapters because these, these, these books take, uh, you know, a long time to, to actually see the light of day. And then there was delays with, with, you know, COVID, you know, I, I think I, I think that we actually had the book more pretty close to complete when when the pandemic first hit. So it's it's good to see it in print.
2: I'll bet. Well, congratulations. I, I read every word of it. It's wonderful. I wanted to ask you, you I was kind of surprised just, just now that you said that you encountered natural law in graduate school because my understanding is that it's undertaught and that one of the contributions of your book is is providing a text that is is helpful to students who who need to grasp the, the basics of it as well. Is, yes. Did
1: you? So we, do, we, we went to grad. So we went to the University of Texas at Austin, um, and you know that's that is one of the one of the best political theory graduate programs, uh, you know, in, in the country, in, in my view. And I think that's it's it's regarded that way because there's a number of political theorists there who are you know very well regarded. Um, you know, one of them, one of them being who engaged within the book, Tom Pangle, who is one of Leo Strauss's, you know, leading students, and he's a great scholar of history of political thought. And of course, our, our mutual mentor, Jay Budaszewski is a Thomistic natural law theorist who teaches there. And so, um, so he's, he's attracted a number of students. And so at least at Texas, you know, there's, there's an opportunity to, be exposed to this tradition and be, and whether, you know, and, uh, people to, you know, to varying degrees will agree or disagree with it, but it is taken seriously there.
2: Hmm. Yeah, Budajeski is that, am I pronouncing it correctly? He's one of the the, the major figures of the natural rights movement,
1: correct? Right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, there really has been a revival in natural law philosophy, um, you know, over the past generation or two. People like John Finnis, Robert George or mm. leading lights, um, you know, in sort of so called new natural law theory. But um, Jay Budashevsky is one of the, I would say, leading natural law theorists who has, you know, been, um, you know, in, is in the same echelon of those kinds of thinkers who are, who has sought, sought to revive uh, natural law thinking for, for politics, for ethics. You know, for difficult moral questions, um, and in the area also of of religion, um, and so you know, you mentioned um, you know how how this this book speaks to you know both the Protestant and Catholic natural law traditions, and Jay Gudashevsky's book, "Written on the Heart," back in the '90s, was one of the leading um, books in the in, in the sort of uh, from serious Protestant perspectives recovering natural law theory. Um, and so anyway, um, yeah.
2: Well, I wanted to ask, it's it's kind of interesting to me that you are you're you and Justin Dyer's uh, backgrounds are in government and political science and natural law theory is also covers uh, philosophy as well. And I wanted to ask you about the title of your book and to ask you to expand on it a little bit you call it political theology and i wonder does that put, would or do you worry that might put off secular minded readers or is it part of the po- part of the point of the book is to is to, ident- is to educate them about the theological origins of it
1: no uh, yeah that's that's a good question and and political theology itself uh can be or is a controversial term for for a number of reasons because it can be associated with carl schmidt and you know there's a whole thing there which you're not necessarily trying to associate it with that but just in in, in the broadest sense the idea that 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 political discourse can be informed by theological concepts and vice versa, um, is I think what we're trying to get across is that the founders took theology seriously and their their mm-hmm. thoughts their their thoughts about God were were important for how they thought about politics. So so in that sense, I think just in the in the very broadest sense of the term um where we want to you know to alert readers to the fact that we we take we take the theology of the founding we try to take it seriously or at least you know um try to understand um how the founders thought about god and what difference it made for their for their approach to politics um so yeah i don't know if that answers your question but
2: no it does that's very helpful i wonder Sticking with the, the uh, theme of theology in the book, you you use the, the term nature's god and the god of nature. I wonder if is there a difference between them or
1: mm. nature's god and the god of nature?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I so I, I would say
1: those those would be been used interchangeably by the founders. Um, I I mean that that does get to the motivation for writing the book. Uh, I mean, at least my my co author he he really wrestled with um with this uh, in some of his work the idea uh, and and with some of his you know coursework and, and mentors um this question of well is the is the god of nature the same different than or compatible with the god of abraham and that and and that way of of, of asking the question is kind of a, a way in the book is to say well was was the god of nature the sort of philosopher's god that was Intended to be a kind of overthrowing of a traditional notion of God as a kind of rational, you know, organizing principle that is sort of identical with the universe, a kind of pantheistic God and in, in the vein of someone like Spinoza or, or was nature's God um, or the God of nature, a providential, moralistic creator God that is distinct from creation or or, or from the universe or from the, the temporal order. Um, but but actively governing it, um, and so what we argue in the book is that actually it's it's the latter that 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 the God of nature, as the founders understood that being, um, was a providential governor, um, and that that this God, at least in as you know as described or and referred to in the Declaration of Independence is not identical with the god of abraham or or with or with the, the, the trinitarian god that christians you know uh nicene christians affirm belief in but was deeply compatible with that with that god um so that at least so so we argue
2: well you used a term there just a moment ago the providential god and i wonder if you could explain that and i mentioned earlier in the interview about the fact that you mentioned in the book very excitingly the the ca- the capture of the spy john andre and the ca- and the foiling of uh, benedict arnold's treasonous plots and i wonder could you explain how that was interpreted what what is what is a providential god and why was that interpreted that episode interpreted that way
1: yeah well and so cuz that's a good question I and mean, yeah there's so one of the chapters of the book um gets into some of the some of the specific evidence for for the americans belief in in a providential god and because you know there's a a more skeptical or critical approach to the founding would say look these you know you had these sort of elite uh intellectual philosophical founders who who use sort of this language as a kind of tub to the whale it's like oh we've 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 got to kind of use this sort of language to throw it out to the masses because you know they still adhere to those superstitions but we know the 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 truth that you know that that's all it's all nonsense. That you know that perspective I we take seriously, but we think is ultimately wrong. And one of the ways of going about showing we're trying to investigate whether or not it's it's wrong is to is to go back to to Continental Congress and say, okay, they issue these proclamations of Thanksgiving, um, and and they say in these proclamations we thank kind providence for its signal interpositions uh, uh, on our behalf say look God favor is favoring us in the war look and here where are the instances finding out the counsels of our enemies raising for us up a powerful ally and turning the the evil of British cool, cruelty in the south uh to the good of our union and so I say okay you know where we say in the book like okay let's let's go let's go look at those. <laughs> let's go look for evidence like and, and and counterintelligence and spying and 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 diplomacy with france and and the southern campaign and let's see like did did people actually in the moment was this just post-hoc rationalization sort of post-hoc um you know pious sort of pious um you know reading of of the events or in the midst of the events do people think about it this way and so so to uh, the andre um the plot with with benedict arnold you know there's they, they hash this plot to to um, you know, give West Point over to the British. and these plans are are foiled by a, you know a few American soldiers capture Andre. And it's interesting, you know in in, in that recounting that specific episode, American General Nathaniel Green, he wrote, quote, um, that this was, quote, the, the most providential train of accidents had led to the capture. And so I right, this is one example of how how in the moment right they, 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 they took it as as God is God is governing you know these affairs and is favoring the American cause. Um, even on the British side, uh, the Comte de Rochambeau um, said quote, this plainly shows that divine Providence is favorable to us and to our cause, which I have more than once experienced since the opening of this campaign in quote. So you know um, I just, it's a, it's one one of various episodes that we talk about uh, and how how the Americans and the French um, understood themselves it seems to be actors in a, in a greater cosmic drama of sorts um, of which you know they they were not they may they were sort of co-authors I, I suppose you might say but they but there was a there was an ultimate author of of the events. Which I think is interesting. Now, whether you, what do you think it's whether it's true is another question. But did they did they did they believe it? I think clearly yes.
2: So the relationship of pro, the providential God to natural law is that there is an ultimate decision maker behind our fates, or what is the? I, I'm not quite clear on the the connection between providentialism and and natural law.
1: Yeah, no, that's 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 a good question. So, so why why would why would natural law require a providential god well the most the, the most basic answer is that a law needs a lawgiver and um and so you know there's there's different ways of of formulating how how god is the author of of natural law but but the sort of the classical way of going about this is in the very act of creating human beings with reason um god and, and god and at least in the in the um, the narrative of Genesis, in in making man in God's image, there's a kind of, of share or, or or ability to share through reason and God's own reason, the eternal reason. And by and by making human beings as rational animals, God makes known, promulgates um, the eternal law, which is to say God's own governing governing plan of the universe. He um, promulgates. A share of knowledge in that um, to human beings, and so by exercising reason, by rightly reasoning, we can grasp, um, you know, basic, uh, basic moral precepts, and you know the sort of classical summary of of those what those precepts are would be more or less what you have in the Ten Commandments: the so duties to one's neighbor um, and uh, duties with regard to one's family and. Um, and duties to God. So, um, and a court, and and you know, and in the American founding, um, there was more of an emphasis on natural rights. But I think one of the things that we try to talk about in the book is, you know, it's a mistake to to think that that the founders wanted to overthrow the idea of natural duties. Um, quite the opposite, actually. They they thought that natural rights were a function of of, of prior duties or obligations. So to say that. To say that you have a natural right to life is the correlative of of the of the duty that others have not to kill you <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was
2: going to say in, in, in your in your book that you're, you make clear that that james wilson's speaking of law his lectures on law that they've just been almost willfully misinterpreted by people who are just determined to strip the founding era of of its of its debt to natural law i wonder if you could discuss wilson's lectures why they're important and how they've been apparently very much distorted by by people both on the left and the right i was fascinated by that could you talk about his that you have an entire chapter on wilson i wonder if you could discuss that
1: yeah. So James Wilson is, you know, uh, I think that he's he's getting more of a renaissance, but he's, you know, kind of he, he he's in some ways a kind of a, a forgotten founder, at least at least has been, um, you know, but he he shouldn't be because he he signed. He's only you know, there's only six people who signed both the Declaration and the Constitution. Uh, Wilson was, um, you know, he was an important figure at the Constitutional con the Constitutional Convention. Um, He was one of Madison's closest, you know, collaborators. Um, And, you know, he also served uh, on the Supreme Court, and he, uh, as an Associate Justice, um, he was invited by the College of Philadelphia to present a series of lectures. Um, And, you know, the audience for that, for one of his first lectures included President Washington and a number of leading statesmen. So these lectures were were important. Um, and he and he really wanted to kind of he kind of wanted to cre- create his, he wanted to sort of be the American blackstone this would be, this would be the sort of commentaries um, on the law. Well, anyway, in in that in his lectures, he he lays out a a natural a sort of architecture of of law that looks deeply traditional. Um, you could tell he, has, he was influenced by the great Anglican um, natural law thinker Richard Hooker um, who himself was was pretty pretty deeply influenced by Thomas Aquinas um, and so in those lectures he he lays out a theistic natural law theory um, as the the ground the for fa- the metaphysical foundation of just law um, that looks you know pretty pretty in con- deep in deep continuity with with the tradition um, and so, yeah, we make the case that at least some some folks who have read Wilson to be, you know, more of a skeptical thinker, you know, um, are you know are incorrect to suggest that he is, you know, in any way subversive. Um, actually, um, his his account has a has a lot. It, it looks like it's you know, um, in continuity with that classical Christian Wallace tradition. Um, and of course, he was influenced by, um, you know. Scottish uh, you know sort of the Scottish moral realists but I think I mean we would I, I I we all spend a lot of time on this but people like Thomas Reed these kinds of folks I think that they are they're they're rediscovering um principles about about conscience and objective morality that um that were sort of already there in the, in the natural law tradition but sort of describing it and using a bit different language but essentially getting at the same the same ideas.
2: Well, I think that it's interesting too that that Richard Hooker at that point would have he, he was a Protestant thinker, correct? That yeah. So I, I think that one of the real values of your book is making clear of the Protestant tradition, because as, as a non-Catholic, I was sort of saying, yay, you know, <laughs> throughout <laughs> yeah. the book, because it because it's also it's also it's interesting from a Protestant point of view and also just showing that that natural law encompasses many thinkers of many, of many different of different, many different eras.
1: For sure. And that's that's a that is an important point of the book is that that this natural law philosophy was was something that was a tradition shared um, by both, you know, Roman Catholic and Protestant founders and and thinkers. And so there's not a lot of Catholics at the founding, but there, you know, there are there's the Carroll family. They're there. And, you know. It's an important contribution um, to the founding as explicitly ex- as it we're explicit confessing Catholics. But, um, but yeah, yes.
2: Michael, Michael, I interviewed Michael Breidenbach about his book about the carols. And it's real that really was fascinating. And it, I, it makes a nice companion to your book because you could read them almost in tandem about the, the what the Catholics were doing and, and their their particular difficulties at the time. But
1: yeah, yeah, yeah Michael's a friend and, and that's you know, his his work on this is great. And that's uh, that I would definitely um, recommend to, to listeners to check out his work. Um, and yeah, so um, you know, uh, but yeah, on the Protestant side, I mean, books like Stephen Grable's Rediscovering Natural Law and Reformed, the Reformed tradition is a really important um, book, and there's been a there's a number of scholars now um, who are kind of working in the the revival of, of Protestant sure. Protestant natural law thinking for politics and ethics and religion. Um, people like Michael Watson, Justin Dyer, my co-author, um, uh, you know, Daryl Charles, um, Matthew Wright. There's a, there's a number of folks there who who are writing and thinking about this stuff and um and who are doing really really interesting work and I think that a lot of I think for contemporary Protestants there there's a lot of debt to C.S. Lewis, um, who I would say is probably the the most important 20th century um Protestant natural law thinker, Um, and of course, you know his his book *Mere Christianity*. um, It begins by talking about this idea: there's there's some there's some law of behavior that is that you assume when you when in any moral thinking or serious moral engagement, um, and which indeed the the gospel message presupposes. Um, And and actually, my my colleague uh, and and co-author. Justin Dyer has written in in another place um, in a book on C.S. Lewis uh, um, about how Lewis was um, he he was engaged in a a kind of intellectual uh, battle with Karl Barth, um, the great theologian um, who sort of really attacked um, natural law thinking and natural theology as unbiblical. Uh, kind of pietistic vein and and he was and and bart, sure what,
2: what kind of what was that word he use? like dietistic
1: pietistic yeah well, pietistic i see yeah pietism so the i you know and i think that he his his motive was was good to try to bart was trying to rescue you know trying to rescue german christianity and and european christianity from nazism and trying to, you know, prize it back apart from, get the Bible away from, you know, the, the swastika. Okay, that's good. But he, because he, he tended, I think that he he tended to associate natural theology and natural law reasoning with liberal Protestantism and, and Catholicism and, and but actually, you know, Calvin himself appeals to natural theology and natural law and you can find it in the, in the Magisterial Reformed Thinkers. Um, you know, uh, but there, but there is this, you know, there is this vein in Calvin, which strongly emphasizes human depravity. And as it were, the noetic effect, the noetic effects of sin. So there's, you know, I guess there's, there's a worry among, among some Protestants that, that, you know, you're going to uh, overemphasize what human beings can know by unaided reason. um, If you, if you go down the path of natural law thinking, but, you know, I think it's, My my view is that that's that's a mistake. Um, You know, Romans, Romans 2, um, I think Romans 2, 14 through 15, pretty clearly indicates that that the law written on the heart um, is put in there by God. (laughs) Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to, from a from a classical, as it were, Orthodox Christian perspective, live up to it (laughs) without help right right and you, you need grace from a christian perspective to to be able to 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 live up to the demands of the moral law um and it also doesn't you know to affirm that he, that the natural law is noble by unaided reason doesn't mean that it's going to be as it were known completely and without error um across all times and places um that's not the claim either um and indeed Right. This is part of the reason why someone like Thomas Aquinas uh, is going to say it's in, it's entirely fitting um, that God would reveal the Ten Commandments because right. Even even the ancient right, Hebrews in relationship with God could could, could get things wrong. <laughs> so um, so let's let's clarify here um, what in principle is noble by reason. Um, so anyway, but that that that. Um, that's a little bit of a, of a of a rabbit trail about Protestantism and natural law. But this book to, to that conversation contributes to say, well, you know, people like James Wilson, yeah, he's, he's a devout Protestant thing, you know, and people like John Jay and some of these guys, they, they're examples of Protestant natural warriors. Um, so, so the recovery of within Protestantism, if there's an interest in, in, um, in recovering natural law, the one place to start is a founder like James Wilson.
2: And yeah, speaking of Jay, you, you you write very movingly about him, as well as Silas Dean, who is an interesting figure. And he was very much treated rather shabbily by Congress and and his political opponents. And you you make clear in in the book about how he was particularly felt that he had a mission that that was that he was it was a a, a God given mission, not just not just a patriotic mission.
1: Yeah, uh, and Dean definitely is one of the I would say. To much more than Wilson, one of the forgotten founders. Um, he was a Yale graduate and a sort of lawyer turned successful merchant in Connecticut. And he had, you know, been a delegate to the first and second Continental Congresses. Um, but he there was some, you know, he had some political rivalries and, and a little bit of falling out with some of his allies, but he eventually gets appointed as one of the ministers to France and he was really important in um nego and you know negotiating an alliance and trying to raise they they, they we, need, we need guns you know we we need ammo we need ammo um and we need we need that navy um and and he was instrumental and in, in helping bring about that alliance alongside um benjamin franklin um and but yeah, he he seems to, and we give evidence um, to the effect that he sees himself as an instrument of providence, um, and frames, uh, along with his his um, his colleagues in France, frames the events in providentialistic terms um, uh, that God has you know brought together France and America in this moment, um, and yeah, I think it's I think it's an interesting um, example of of. Uh, to further gives further evidence um for for the the claim of the book that that the the founders um, thinking about politics and, a, and practical approach to politics was informed by by a deep belief that that the universe was governed by a providential God.
2: I was going to say, um, among the, the interesting figures in your book, that in that episode with Silas Dean is, is the rather louche Frenchman Beaumarchais, and I thought, well, okay. what, I was, <laughs> well, that's kind of an interesting sort of um, pop, figure to pop up here, but that, that was quite interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. uh speaking speaking of figures that i did not expect in the book was uh Arustes uh, brownson who lived from eight, he was of a later generation from 1803 to 1876 i wonder if you could discuss him a little bit and and it, what was interesting to me was that he's an interesting mix he was a uh originally a protestant was a Unitarian, actually and then became a catholic and so he's kind of, he's a rather interesting figure could you discuss his idea especially again he he discusses the providential constitution
1: mhm yeah. So you know, also Brownson, I wanted to
2: ask, I forgot to ask, and what is his ideas about secondary sovereignty?
1: Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, Brownson, we, we talk about in one of the chapters that tries to sort of re reread, um, the, the idea, or try to, um, uh, rethink through what, what the the founders of founding political philosophy uh, had to say about sovereignty and the idea of popular sovereignty. Um, and, you know, the constitution begins, with you know, we, the people. Um, and the idea is that, well, the, the people are, as it were, in charge here, and they are ordaining um, and establishing a constitution. And its authority derives from from the people's will, but is it is it mere will, um, as it were, a voluntaristic idea that it's just the fact that um, most the, the, the most powerful group says so, or is
2: or,
1: uh, as a voluntarist might say, or is there as it were? Oh, a could, could
2: I interrupt you for a moment and ask yeah. me, what is what is voluntarism?
1: Yeah, so voluntarism is. Voluntarism is a it's a school of of thinking that that uh from just from the term itself voluntas meaning will it makes raises the will up to be the 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 ur principle of of morality politics uh religion and it and its its roots are in a um are in a, a particular kind of voluntaristic theology um and you can make the case that that this that that this way of thinking um, gains gains some steam um, from uh, elements of the Reformation. Uh, again, not not I wouldn't say the entire Reformation, but but someone like Luther at times emphasizes um, God's will above all things. And um, but there was there were earlier voluntarist anomalous people like William of Ockham and others. Who are worried if you if you start talking about God's reason and um and as it were the divine ideas in God's mind, um that, that were that were somehow um you know they that these, these could be somehow limiting in God's will, you restrain God's freedom if you start talking about um you know the limits to God's will and virtue of his goodness or his nature. And so someone like like Occam, and at least arguably later people like Luther were worried that um, you know if you if you start talking about God in this way or you, you emphasize that too much you're gonna you're gonna you know hamstring you're gonna bootstrap God God won't be really free to to do what God wants um, and and that that way of thinking sort of starts bleeding more and more down into politics um, that. That that the source of of morality of politics is not reason but its will, um, and anyway the the natural law of tradition the paschal natural law tradition has you know a, an accompanying tradition of theology that um, holds that God's will is is not in opposition to but is identical with his his own goodness and his own nature, and um, and God. You know, it, 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 God's freedom is not, as it were, violated or or eliminated by by saying that in choosing to create the order that God in fact created, God binds himself to that order freely. God doesn't have to create, but having chosen to create, he creates an order that he binds himself to, and and that's important because natural law assume the natural law philosophy assumes that there is an order in nature that is sort of regular that we can discern by reason and that you know um you know if i when i when i get out of bed and step into my shoes right i i'm not gonna just float (laughs) i'm gonna float into space right this it's not just moral laws but it's also um laws of gravity these sorts of things these things are stable in nature um and and the ontological ground of that is is God's own creation um so anyway so vol- so volunteerism you know um I don't know if that's a helpful, helpful description of it but I think that the, the the founders reject that idea in theology and in politics um and therefore the idea of sovereignty um is not as it were a an, un- as a, an unmitigated or um, a kind of unbounded will, mm. but it is it is a capacity to choose that is bounded by by the moral law that's known by reason. And so we, the people, um act with authority um, on when they when they are within those sort of parameters.
0: And this episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Well, I even I even have a quote from the book that is just what I just just what we're looking for. <laughs> I mean, just what just what I'm what I was what I underlined when I was reading the book, uh, the founders under You write the founders understanding of popular sovereignty as limited and conditioned by a pre-existing natural law. I was interested that they say, yes, we 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 as as patriots, we want to direct the destiny of our country, but we are controlled also by certain parameters that we have to obey. Is that correct or? Yeah, yeah. And so, and so that,
1: that's why we, when we get into Brownson, he, Brownson really writes one of the, one of the better reads of, of, you know, of the sort of next generation after the founders have died, um, interpreting our constitutional order. And he sees, he sees that this is, this is a, a, a constitutional order that's under God and that that um sees human beings as secondary causes by which is meant we are we are causes within a, a created order that are that are as it were dependent dependent upon a first cause and that and that conditions limits um uh it, it empowers but it also conditions limits it's the it's it wants the empowering and and limiting condition for human beings to exercise legitimate freedom to to form their a constitution that shall, as the as the Declaration of Independence says, seem to them most likely to affect their safety and happiness.
2: Well, one of the one of the fascinating things in the book too is that you make the point that the the Patriots would use would appeal to law, and when they're in their fight with the British Parliament and the and the King and their their edicts and things that they thought were unjust as colonists, that they would they would refer to. Uh, rights and leg, leg, legal, legal, legal issues and political issues and, and precedent. But then if that didn't work, then their default was to refer to natural law and, and a, at a deeper level of, of injustice. And I wondered, uh, how did the British politicians react? Did they ever try to counter with their own natural law arguments or did they just Read. engage in, in, le- in legal arguments and just ignore? Or were they confounded or perplexed? Or did they find, <laughs> did they find the, 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 uh, the colonist arguments specious, self-serving and self-righteous? Do they just mm-hmm. kind of roll their eyes and say, "Oh, not the natural rights thing again"? Oh goodness
1: yeah. me! Yeah, no, that's a good question. And so we, one of the one of the chapters of the book gets into the pamphlet debates, and 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 this is you know the place to to look for how, how do the British respond because this is this is the great transatlantic debate between 1764 and 1776 um, that's you know initially triggered by. Uh, well, following the Seven Years' War, you know, a lot of debt. Um, you know, there's <laughs> national mm. debt's been a been a, a salient political issue for you know, for a long time. Um, and in in the, in the British case, they they racked up a big debt and they need to raise some money, so they pass the Stamp Act. Well, you know, raising taxes in this in this way looked like it was in, in, internally on the colonies, without without some form of consent, looked like it was something new and and so. You know.
2: well one one of the things that you make in the in the a point in the book that's also fascinating is that uh you make you make clear that by modern standards, the taxes that the British were imposing were not that onerous and were not that yeah. really unjust It's just that they were novel, I guess, and the the, the colonists yeah. didn't like like the fact that there was suddenly taxes.
1: Yeah, no, I um i I spent some time <laughs> that's so that's something the thing I spent quite a bit of time on is is trying to find the best research that that could tether, um, you know, uh, money at the, at the value of money at the founding, um, and how it would, how it would translate to today. And some of, some of that work is hard to have with, to, to nail down with, with great precision, but, but yeah, the best, the best that we can estimate, it, it doesn't look like the onerousness of the, of, you know, of the, of requiring, you know, a, a certain kind of piece of paper to get married, um, is, that radically different from having to get a marriage license today say mm-hmm. it was what it wasn't in, 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 to use natural law sort of framing it wasn't a an injustice ex forma in the sense that it was overburdening part of the population with with uh, with a, a ridiculous amount of taxes in fact the americans were doing fairly compared at, the, at that time in, in you know on a, on a world scale Uh, the standard of living was actually relatively decent for your um, for your average free person. Um, But it it but what was what was different was distinctive was that there there wasn't a form of consent through their local legislature and they didn't have representation uh, in parliament. And well, so,
2: another another interrupt you to tell you how wonderful your book was again because another wonderful point you make in the book on that point was that they were demanding representation that were not granted to people in the British Isles, even though that was obviously unjust. But but it was they were demanding we want more representation than the British would say would grant say someone yeah. in London or Yorkshire or Dorset sure. or
1: Hampshire at the time. It's sure. a, they, and that and that was one of the that was one of the sort of British pamphlet tier arguments back is say oh you you know these upstarts want <laughs> they they want something that that you know, it's not until well into the 19th century that you have uh, in British the, the sort of you know uh, the expanding the expanding of the franchise uh, these old rotten boroughs where we were totally
2: disproportionate
1: mm. um, uh, uh, reform there so yes and um, you know so the the British have some they have some powerful arguments back at the Americans and that's and that chapter tries to go through and, and wrestle with the arguments that the, the Americans were making. And, and yeah, so they, they appeal both to the British constitution and they also appeal to natural justice and, you know, um, part of, part of that, of the challenge here is, well, you know, were they just kind of throwing everything at the wall, um, and whatever would stick, you know, um, <laughs> or did they, did they really believe in the, the appeals to, to natural right Um, And I, and I, again, you, you could, uh, I, I, you can make the case that there, that, that natural law rhetoric has, has a useful purpose, but that, uh, but I've always, I've never, I've never seen the point that just because something is useful doesn't mean they couldn't also be true or believe Mm. me. Um, And so, yeah, I think that, I think that they, I think that they appealed to both constitutional, legal arguments and natural law arguments because they saw those those legal principles as de- as ultimately grounded in the moral principles, and you know and, th- and that makes sense. It would make sense that you appeal to both if you thought that that the that one was grounded in the other.
2: Hmm. Well, I was going to say that it's interesting in your book too that you say that um, the Magna Carta. And issued in 2015 1215, and other milestones, even though they the, as you say, they threw every kid against the wall and they would use legalistic arguments when they wanted to, when they needed to. and but when they weren't working, again, they didn't they, they would default again to natural law. But I wanted to read one passage from your book that's yeah. kind of an interesting bold claim for the book, and I think it kind of encapsulates that. You say over and against the, uh, the notion that sovereign power stands above the law, the American founders embraced the idea that those who exercise political authority should be ruled by law. These arguments were embedded in a theological context and are only and are fully comprehensible only in the light of the persistent influence of the classical Christian natural law as emphasis on the rule in the on the rule of law in theology and politics. And I think that's very interesting. And I wonder if you could defend that, say, to a, a modern American secularist who says, "Wait a minute, I don't, I don't buy this. That if you say our nation is founded in theology, I'm not, I'm not on board with that." Or, yeah. or how? how does that affect us today and 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 why would you argue for the value of that i mean how how yeah. how does that enrich our our lives as citizens
1: yeah that's good um why so why would it matter to to um to the the groundwork to the foundation of the rule of law um to think about theology in a certain way or think that that god exists well the founders in, in, in during in the very pamphlet debates, um, appealed to a certain understanding of God um, to to oppose the idea of absolutism. So and, and I think that's that's how I would defend it is to say, what why should government what, what is what is wrong with absolutist government or a government that uh, can do all things?? Um, well, if you think that that if you think limited government is valuable, um, then the question is, well, why have limited government? What's What's the reason for it? And for the founders, it was because, well, um, the government is under God, and there is <laughs> there is a there is a set of guaranteed rights. That are are based in the Creator that government can't violate, and and that government is at the very ground of government's authority and provides the reason for government's existence. <laughs> 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 so, um, so if Americans, I I I think still today are a liberty-loving people. Indeed, there is a presidential campaign just launched by one of the major political parties in which the contender for that party has made it his. His the, the the groundwork of his campaign is defending freedom, defending liberty. Okay, that's that sounds good. Um, but where does that freedom come from? Is it a gift of government? Because if it's a gift of government, then that same government couldn't take it away, or is it that it it, it precedes government that it's that that it, it is, as it were, uh, prior, it's ontologically prior to government itself that that human the human beings are in virtue of their dignity as rational creatures um, uh, created by God do certain things. Um, And so um, the founders believed that 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 the creator uh, um, endows us with natural rights. And this provided the 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 backstop, the the ground of argument and appeal to say, Look, Parliament, you guys can't claim sovereignty to bind us in quote all cases whatsoever, which they said in the Declaratory Act. That looks like an absolutist unlimited government. Mm. And that is contrary to our to an understanding, a, 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 a proper understanding of, of of God's relationship to human beings. God guarantees certain fundamental natural rights, and and that provides the very basis of. And God also rules the universe through these, these, these discernible laws in, in a rational way. And that provides an archetype for, for governance, which is to say um, a, a government founded upon stable rule of law, reason, respect for rights, and not arbitrary will, not arbitrary power, um, just, to, just to do whatever. And that's, again, that's a voluntaristic notion of God. But that being false in theology, according to the founders, it should also be false in, in politics. And they they took the, the the British argument to be a kind of a kind of uh, apology for arbitrary absolutism um, and despotism, which they which they argued would make us into slaves. And they <laughs> use that they use that powerful language today that it's almost jarring to us, knowing that that the the founding generation failed ultimately to make good on um, the promise of natural rights for everyone, regardless of of skin color. But the but but their own principles are what condemns that failure. Um, It wasn't a problem with the principles in themselves. It was it was a problem in their in their application. Um, And but they themselves recognized that Arbitrary rule over over persons, apart from their consent, apart from their consent, not respecting their natural rights is tyranny is absolutism. Um, And then that's an offense to God um, to to treat people that way. And so to to a a secularist today, you know, who if if, if a secular sort of minded person today were to say, uh, oh, I value freedom, you know, I value limited government. Then the question is, well, why and what's the reason why government can't cross a certain line. Is it just because the majority says so? Well, watch out because tomorrow the majority might have a
2: different idea. Well, the spe- speaking now that we're on the the subject of absolutism and tyranny and despotism, you talk about uh, th- um, Thomas Hobbes, and I wonder if you could talk about throughout the book you talk about him. And could you just explain to us as a as a reader? I was a little bit. I was having trouble. That's not your fault. It's, it's my own poor background in philosophy, but could you talk about the terms Hobbesian versus Hobbist?
1: Yes. <laughs> well, there that is. Um, there's, there is a bit more of a backstory to that, which is... Yeah, you have an entire book on Hobbes, I know. <laughs> yes, I've, I've written a book on Hobbes, and I stake out an interpretation of Hobbes that, shall we say, is... Um, not the majority interpretation. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a minority view on Hobbes. It's not, it's not a standard view of Hobbes. Um, and so, um, so I, my own view is that Hobbes actually has more in continuity with this classical natural law tradition than is often thought. But there is, there is a way of reading Hobbes that is prominent throughout. Throughout history, including the way our founders thought about Hobbes, that we call Hobbes or Hobbes philosophy, which um, which basically holds that um, that the, the 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 foundations of morality, politics, is all will. It's a it's a kind of voluntaristic idea um, that you know if you imagine a state of nature, a condition where there's no law, there's no government. Um, in that condition, uh, Hobbes. Suggests, and you can read Hobbes this way in a Hobbist way, um, would just be void of all of all moral principles. Um, You know, Hobbes says it'd be in that condition. It would be a a bellum omnia contra omnes, right? The the war of all against all. (laughs) Um, You would do whatever you could to survive, and you would do it with right. Um, So it'd be a pretty nasty, pretty nasty place. But and Hobbes says that's bad. You know, we got to get out of that situation. So we basically create government. We create justice. We 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 decide to come together, give up that radical freedom, and create law and government for the sake of safety. Um, well, uh, someone like Alexander Hamilton, you know, would have he read the British thinkers to be deeply Hobbists in the sense that he thought that that well, he says. Um, he he thinks Hobbes was an atheist, and that Hobbism was a kind of atheistic philosophy where there is no God, there's no morality, and fundamentally at root we just make it all up, and it's all a product of will. And and uh, so Hob is a set of doctrines that is more or less what we've been talking about of voluntarism, um, and and the way that the founders understood uh, Hobbes's philosophy. Is uh, we we set up as as a kind of foil um, because they attacked it themselves and and it was a set of ideas that that they fundamentally rejected. Um, Hobbesian would be, shall we say, that would be a term that could be broader and, and encompass other possible interpretations of Hobbes. Um, <laughs> uh, but hobbist at least as we use the, used the, the term is is a more specific set of of notions associated with volunteerism subjectivism you know that that kind of stuff um, but at least we leave the door open in this book because we're the, the book's not really about Hobbes himself but we leave the door the door open that there could be other ways of reading Hobbes himself but the book doesn't stand or fall on whether or not my previous work on Hobbes got it right i could be i could be wrong about that and this book could still stand on its on its own. It's, you know, that's what I've argued about Hobbes is, how we say, probably more controversial and and harder for some to, to swallow, but that's a different conversation.
2: <laughs> well, at this point, I just want to remind leader, listeners that we are talking today with Cody W. Cooper, one of the two authors of the, of with Justin Buckley Dyer of the 2022 book, The Classical and Christian Origins of American Politics, Political Theology, Natural Law and the American Founding. And since we've been discussing various figures that are in the book and we, and there are so many of them, that's just really fascinating and, and, and new, new takes on them. I didn't, I didn't know. Uh, I didn't, I always regarded as Arrestus Brownson as a bit of a crank, but he wasn't at all. <laughs> I mean, he's a person of some substance and, and, and that I didn't realize. Could you tell us a little bit about James Otis and John Dickinson?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, Otis and Dickinson, we talk about them in the context of, the pamphlet debates, and again, I would say, James. So, you know, one one of the things about this book is we, you know, where we are taught, we talk about some of like the the most remembered founders. I have a whole chapter on Thomas Jefferson. You know, he's one of the one of the most famous remembered founders. And uh, and again, James Wilson is one of the most influential, but he's a little little less little less known popular, I would say. But he he is definitely had a revival in scholarship. But then there's these these thinkers like Otis and Dickinson who. I would say our first rate in uh, intellects and were very important but which ha, you know um, are not, not as not discussed as much some you know more on the forgotten side um, but Otis was um, thought by John Adams to be a very important um, you know person and
2: yeah, and yeah. the book you made that's another very dramatic. That was something that was very new to me. And it was very interesting that Adams just said he was that was the crucial point, that was a pivotal point that he that he thought that Otis's were were work, work was just absolutely uh without with the the revolution began with him. I thought that was yes. really
1: fascinating. Yeah, because you have the you have these uh these cases where the British are trying um in massachusetts to you know they're they're trying to stop smuggling you know so you can you can understand (laughs) british perspective and that but um you know they 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 start trying to uh engage in searches and seizures in a way that didn't look like it was it was um respecting the 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 common law rights that the the the, um, the colonists believe that they they enjoyed um and so he he was he he railed against against this, um, and Adams thinks that this is kind of the this is kind of the one of the initial moments of the, the spark of the revolution is is ignited. Um, but yeah, he writes one of the one of these really important one of the first and, and uh, most well known early pamphlets, "The Rights of the, of the British Colonies Asserted and proved. and Otis there he lays out. I think I love know,
2: that title. they're not shy about saying right in the title,
1: <laughs> yes, right, you know it was and <laughs> you when you get when you get when you get steeped in this literature, um you know, it's like wow, we've uh i don't I'm not sure that we're we're <laughs> I'm not sure our standards of literacy have have gone up since the founding <laughs> these <laughs> days. um we we've definitely lost something, but um. Uh, and, and indeed, when when only one in one in three children by the fourth grade um, have proficiency in in reading, it's not not good. Mm-hmm. But at any, at any rate, um, so Otis he um, he lays out I think a, a deeply Thomistic um, classical natural law perspective um, in his as a kind of assumed kind of assumed um, first principles. Um, that he he sheds light on um, in that pamphlet and so we talk about that and um you know we talk about how um otis continues to to make an argument for you know make an argument against um what the what the british are doing and taxation excuse me um and yeah, unfortunately, Otis, he doesn't he doesn't live too much longer. He, he you know, he dies uh, not too long at, um, after this initial episode. But it would have been really interesting to see what the contributions he would have made if, you know, if he had lived on to the Declaration of the Constitution. Um, but, yeah, he makes a really important contribution to um, founding political thought in his in, in his pamphlet. Um, John Dickinson um you know, again, one of these underrated found founders, and he was a lawyer from 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 Pennsylvania. Um, He writes um, a series of pamphlets that were that that were widely read. And in those pamphlets, we argue that some of some of the same themes we've been talking about that um, a a notion of of God as creator and author of nature shines through. um, And, the idea that that such a being is the source of natural rights and and particularly the natural right of property um, um is is sourced in this um this kind of creator god um and indeed um specifically christian natural law tradition shines through in dickinson's writings um and he talks about um how you know, Christian virtues and grace uh, is compatible with and reinforces um, the 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 precepts of natural law, and and helps us to live them out. And um, so, so Dickinson, you know, um, is, a, is another important figure that that I think provides more evidence for for our thesis. Um, yeah, again, I could say more in more detail about any of that, but I think the property point is is one we haven't really gotten to yet. And you know, indeed, the uh, you could say about the about the founders, like, oh well, this is you're, you're going to fight a revolution because you know because you, you you had to pay a little taxes and you're you're that selfish. Well, um, you know, that's that kind of reading of the founding is is deeply mistaken. The way that the way that the founders understood property was was it was in service of of uh and, and Dickinson people like Dickinson Otis talk about this it's in service of li- leaving leading a virtuous and fulfilling life mm-hmm. it's in service of providing for your family and your community um and pro- and it's also essential to to lead leading a, a dignified life that's independent that's not that's that's not you know dependent upon government from cradle to grave for all things um and so from from Dickinson to Otis to Thomas Jefferson they all agreed that that uh, property was an essential right, but it wasn't this sort of acquisitive uh, atomistic, you know, I'm going to go out and get rich and lord it over everyone else. Um that's a kind of corruption. Uh, that's a kind of it's kind of corruption of capitalism, I think, or they I think I think they would think. Um,
2: well, you say in, you say in the book very movingly that Washington and others of the founding fathers would quote the biblical line of uh, quotation, about and he shall not be afraid mm-hmm. that people are are the part of what as, as you say their argument was we just want to live a peaceful life without being tyrannized or or oppressed and and interfered yeah. with and this that is micah their-
1: that's micah 4 4 um you know that that they should sit every man under his vine under his fig tree and none should make them afraid and the found the founders the founders loved the bible <laughs> mm-hmm. they, they loved they loved finding in the bible and again there's there's a there's a kind of skeptical, uh, cynical way of reading this. You're like, oh, you're just going to mine it to find you know uh, evidence for your Republican theory to you know f- to be a rebel. Um, okay, maybe, but but I think that they actually went and read it and and found support for for republicanism and natural rights um, in the Bible. And and believe that it sincerely was there. I mean, and there is this is one of those examples where where there's this kind of ideal of 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 a kind of leading a quiet life, um, and and um, being able to pursue one's happiness and lawful uh, in a lawful way in lawful professions and have a family and raise a family and participate in one's community and go to church, right? All. The, th- the things that are decried later as sort of bur- bourgeois uh, unfulfilling mm. actually turn out to be the the very things that might actually lead to lead a fulfilling life. And the precondition of it is that you you've got to have rule of law that respects uh, property rights. um And so um they found in the Bible that 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 idea being lauded and um, and thought that that what they were doing in America was deeply compatible with these with these kind of sort of uh, aspirations or, or ideals laid out in the Bible.
2: And you you make the point when you quote some of Silas Dean's letters to his wife that he that he embodies that that he felt that he wanted to be at home with his with his family and not be going off on a dangerous trip to france but he, but he felt that he again he was directed by by god yeah. to to and to and to ensure that they would be able to have that peaceful life and you mentioned jefferson and i i blew it in the interview because i did not allow enough time and i know i have to let you go but uh i just want to say to readers that listeners that their uh chapter on jefferson is really fascinating because i don't i was kind of surprised because i don't usually regard him as a natural law man particularly and so that 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 is a very provocative and fascinating chapter that it's it's a reevaluation of him is that correct but that that, that it's a pretty innovative look at him in terms of natural law
1: yeah yeah no i think that is it is is one of the more provocative chapters to because because jefferson is widely regarded as more of this sort of the more skeptical deistic um type thinkers and we make the case that that you know he has a providentialist understanding of god and that he believes in uh, a set of natural law principles accessible through conscience and you know um jefferson was definitely an enigmatic and eclectic thinker so you know you can you can sometimes find evidence for for multiple propositions on on multiple sides of a question in jefferson um and he didn't really systematize his thought but I don't think that that necessarily means that he doesn't have a view that is internally coherent, but you, it does require some more investigation. And among, among all the founders, Jefferson's probably the one that I know the best personally. Um, and I've, as I've read through so many thousands of, of pages of, of his letters and stuff, and I still haven't gotten through all of it, there's a lot here, 20,000 letters or more. So, um, but um, having having mined through so much of so much of Jefferson, I feel pretty confident about the argument of that chapter um, to to stand on its own. Indeed, for my next, I I I, I am I have a project in mind that could that's be perfect because the because the Jefferson.
2: traditional question, the final question on the New Books Network is, what are you working on now? So you're just in perfect timing for that <laughs> yeah. question.
1: Yeah, well, I have um, I have been thinking about Jefferson, and I have I have an idea for for something on on Jefferson's thought. So that it, it, that's a, definitely a potential uh, thing going forward, and I've also I've also been thinking more about the idea of idolatry um, and how it could be a an interesting analytical tool for 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 political thought and, and and analyzing politics, and I've been thinking more about about that how it how it could look and even assessing politics today as a as an important concept. So I I haven't really written much on that yet. Uh, do, do you mean,
2: I, do you mean idolatry in terms of artwork or or or? I mean worship or?
1: I mean it as a as as a how do I put it? So let me let me back up for a second like, I, to try to explain a little more. Part of the the classical natural law tradition, particularly in someone like Thomas Aquinas's thought, is the idea that a human being who is any, any person who is you know, leading a life with their with the faculties of of intellect and will um, are go- is going to um, have something in their lives that they take as a highest good. Hmm. They're going to order their lives upon some some plan of life that, whether explicitly or implicitly, holds adheres to some some good something that that they that is architectonic to their life what is that thing Hmm. well in you know in classical christian theology um i would say you know judeo-christian theology um if that thing is not god it's some it's some kind of an idol (laughs) (laughs) um and so idolatry is not just bowing down for the golden calf anything any any created good can become an idol if it become if it becomes the architectonic thing in one's life uh, at least according to the, the sort of classical christian tradition and so if that's true or whether 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 or not it's true i guess you could even set the truth value aside but but i i think that that idea could be an interesting tool to to take to politics when does political ideology become a, a form of idolatry whether it is um idolatry of a certain idea of, of the state itself or of, uh, of, of of human beings or in this case gen- gender
2: ideology is becoming a bit of a an an idol form of idolatry.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, that's, and there's, there could be a case to be made there too. Um, So, you know, it could, it could explain a lot of things. Um, So anyway, I I haven't thought it through all the way yet, but I don't know if that answers your question about defining idolatry. It's, 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 it's making, it's making anything other than God, the highest thing is one way to just define it easily in, in one's life um and part of what this entails is trying to define what religion is because it seems to me that that religion is um uh it seems to me that if that if you define religion in a functionalist way which is to say that which serves in your life as an ordering principle then it's not whether religion it's which religion Mm -hmm. um and which is to say, there is, it, it, I'm skeptical of the idea that you can cordon off some sphere of life, to call it this, the secular or something like this, that is just somehow, somehow non-religious. Um, I, 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 I suspect that religion could be a plenary um, concept and experience, and that's, it's variegated, but it's, it has all sorts of different expressions of it. And, and this is why I think religious freedom is, is, is a very important value. But I I I am I wonder if um, and I don't I don't know if I've yet been able to prove, but I I suspect that um, secularism and, and its various offshoots are themselves forms of religion.
2: Absolutely, that's what Robert George argues that it has its own it has its own saints, its own. Holidays, its own rituals, its own he's, its own its own devils, and, and and its own its own form of of, of um, infidelity, <laughs> right?
1: It's own, and its own priest class, and, and and with with authority to excommunicate heretics, etc. Yeah, no, I think I think robby's probably right about that, um, but I I I do think that it 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 is at least to my to my own mind still under theorized of, uh, of in terms of proving it to be the case um and there's there is interesting work being done on this but it's an area i'm I'm getting more interested in so yeah um but i would just and one other thing i just wanted to go back to for a second that you mentioned before was about about family and um and silas dean and what came to mind was um i don't know if i talk about this in the book but there's a there's a beautiful exchange of letters between john adams and abigail adams um, where Abigail says, you know, because she's she's pining for for Adams to come home. So he's a minister in mm-hmm. England, and she's she's the, she's running she's running their their homestead back there mm-hmm. and trying to trying to keep the family together. And in and, wartime, in wartime, right? <laughs> and and she says, you know, um, what what is politics but ultimately a kind of a form of fame? And what and and is fame not as vain as the weathercock? Mm-hmm. You know, it it blows in the wind. She says, you know, let us let us go buy a little cottage and retire and and go go spend our time in private life. And that's another thing I am interested in if I write or if or when I write the book on Jefferson, one of the driving questions to my mind that I'm still not sure I have the answer to yet is what how how did the founders ultimately balance their value of private life with the value of public life? Mm. um you know as i think that adams agreed would agree with his wife about how there is this there is this sort of inner tension or conundrum within politics that there's a kind of fleetiness and vanity to it that's not fulfilling and yet at the same time they see it as their duty their patriotic duty to serve and that there's a good in it and so how how do you um how how do you make these things compatible coherently when jefferson says i just want to go back to my farm and my family and my books um is he is he is he really sincere that that, that that's the that's the most important thing it, it, did did adams really view that as the most important thing or on the other hand did they were their ambitions to be to become president and great statesman did they see that did they see that as the highest thing and I, I'm not, and that, that may be an individual level question, depending on the founder. I'm not sure if there's like one answer to the whole, the entire founding generation.
2: Certainly but Washington with the, the myth of Cincinnati at his plow and going and fighting and then returning and.
1: Sure, for sure. I mean that, and that's, that's a great,
2: and, and if, and if you do look at it that way,
1: what is the value of politics? If it's, is it just that it's instrumental to you know, making the, making the possible flourishing at Mount Vernon or Monticello or wherever it is. Um, or and if so, then what? Is, then then how can you attract how can you attract people to serve and 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 go into politics? Um, if it's if it's just like taking out the trash, <laughs> to, it's got to be done. But was there any value in it? And can you make it but they but they don't seem to talk about it that way in in other times, they they, they seem to have time to talk about, though, there is this intrinsic good to it. Um, What is that? And I I find that to be an interesting question of political philosophy and one that's interesting to explore in their own thoughts. So, yeah, maybe I'll get into that. So um,
2: anyway. Well, that's, uh, we'll look forward to whatever whatever comes of their many, many projects. And I think both a book on idolatry and a book on Jefferson and anything else you come up with would be very welcome back on the New Books Network. Okay. And yeah. with that, I will yeah. just thank the author we've been talking to today, Cody W. Cooper, co-author with Justin Buckley-Dyer of the 2022 book, The Classical and Christian Origins of American Politics, Political Theology, Natural Law, and the American Founding. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, Cody. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.